How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, this is David Rubenstein, and I'm here with John Barry, who has written a very prescient book about the great influenza. He wrote it a number of years ago, not knowing, actually, that we'd probably have another great influenza in effect. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about your background. Uh, This is a fairly uh, interesting book in terms of the science of it, as well as the story of it. Do you have a science background? Well, I don't. But when I was a kid, there were only two things I wanted to do, and that was uh, medical research uh, or be a writer. I actually remember the precise moment at which I decided not to go into medical research and the reasons why. You know, I went to grad school in history, uh, dropped out of grad school, actually coached football, became a journalist, then started writing books. The science was always there. I co-authored a book with uh, Stephen Rosenberg, who developed immunotherapies at the National Cancer Institute and did the first gene therapy experiments. That uh, gave me a a pretty good grounding in immunology. Uh, and probably without that, it would have been a very different book in terms of the science aspects of it. So the great influenza, as it's called in the title of your book, how many people around the world died to the best of our knowledge? Well, the estimates are a wide range, but it's uh, modern epidemiologists think it's between 50 and 100 million people. So that would equal adjusted for population between 220 and 440 million people today. How many died in the United States? to the best of our knowledge? Uh, 675,000 probably, uh, about 2 million today. So actually the U.S. got off fairly light. Some people call this the Spanish flu. Why is it called the Spanish flu since it didn't originate in Spain? Chiefly because uh, Spain was not at war, so it didn't censor its press. And a lot of people got sick, including the king of Spain, celebrity culture then as now that got a lot of media attention uh, and it picked up that name. Although in Spain, I think they called it the Naples flu. So let's uh, say, what would you say as a result of studying this for many years and writing about it, what is the principal lesson that you took away from the events that led to and transpired during the great influenza? That's pretty easy. I think there are really uh, two main lessons. Uh, Number one, tell the truth. Uh, and, and number two, there were lessons in terms of public health measures to mitigate the pandemic, uh, essentially the same things that we're, we're doing today. When the George W. Bush administration uh, got very serious about pandemic preparedness, passed, passed a $7 billion bill. Part of that included preparedness and planning, and I was part of that process and would always push the lesson primarily of telling the truth. Uh, everybody in those meetings agreed with me and it's uh, 
featured at the top of the federal pandemic preparedness plan in every one of the 50 state plans, but you still have to get someone who will actually execute that plan. So were you surprised in your research that 100 years ago, uh, what people were told to do was wash your hands, socially distance, and wear a mask? Essentially the same three things 100 years later we're telling people to do. Is that a, was that a surprise uh, to you? Not really. I mean, it's, it's what tools you have. Uh, it goes back a lot longer than that in, in terms of infectious disease. Just keep away from crowds of people for centuries. It, it recommended the same things. Washing the hands w was new. That was part of the outgrowth of uh, the germ theory of disease, which, of course, you know, Pasteur in the 1860s and 1870s. Uh, but the rest of it was pretty obvious. Also, increase ventilation, keep the windows open, things like that that sounds so simple. And yet, even today, that's very important. So uh, when did this flu start? In other words, did it start in a military base or did it start somewhere else in the United States? Where do we know or believe it started? Well, the first cases that I could identify were actually in rural Kansas. And you can trace people that had cases in their family traveling to Fort Riley, uh, where was the first outbreaks in a military camp. But about the same time, or very so shortly thereafter, that the first cases were in this rural Kansas community. Uh, there were also cases in New York City, and before there were any outbreaks in, in the military camps. Uh, it's In my book, I hypothesize that it actually began in that Kansas community. Since then, in the 16 years, there's been a lot of research, and I now think it's most likely that it started in China, although there are virologists, very good ones, who think it started in France, Vietnam. I think New York City is also a possibility, and Kansas is still a possibility. We'll probably never know where it started. It did not start in Spain, however. But uh, many people who were adversely affected in large amounts were affected in our military bases. We had large numbers of soldiers then getting ready to deploy to go to out of Europe for World War One, Is it true that, or is it not true that a lot of people were affected who were young soldiers? Oh, absolutely, but it wasn't just soldiers. The peak age for death was, was in the 20s. So it was young adults. Roughly two thirds of the, of the dead worldwide were people aged 18 to 45. I think the war may have accelerated the spread of the disease, but it did not introduce the disease. So I said, before there was any military outbreaks, uh, there was disease in New York City. Uh, there was disease in rural Kansas. There was probably disease elsewhere in the world. Uh, so if it's in New York City, uh, it's going to get around the world eventually anyway. Um, but hundreds of thousands of U.S. soldiers did move from the United States to Europe in the spring of 1918, and it does seem that they carried it uh, and accelerated the spread. They carried it to Europe. So what is the difference between uh, an influenza, which comes from virus, and some disease that comes from bacteria? What's the difference? Well, the virus is not alive, so you can't kill it. When the germ theory was born, in fact, there, there, was, there were some pretty sophisticated alternatives, including a chemical theory of disease, that chemicals can start a chain reaction in the body. And it almost fits you know, that, that kind of construct. Uh, you know, viruses are extremely difficult. They also 
in an influenza virus and most RNA viruses mutate very, very rapidly, uh, which makes them extremely difficult to target vaccines for. In general, that's not always the case. So with COVID-19, we've seen that if somebody is very ill, they go to the hospital and they get treatment. Hopefully they get uh, improved as a result of the treatment. Was, was that the case then in 1918 or so? Did people rush to the hospitals or were the hospitals not equipped to deal with people? And what happened to those people who, who didn't get medical treatment? The only thing they had in 1918 uh, was supportive care. And right now that's all we have pretty much with, with some minor exceptions, remdesivir and, and the new steroid that just was found to have some effect. Uh, but the supportive care today, of course, is vastly better than supportive care in 1918. Uh, in 1918, there wasn't much more that they could do for someone than, uh, than keep them hydrated uh, and, and, and fed. Uh, so it was largely nature taking its course. It, for those, and a good many people died of secondary bacterial infections. There's a lot of scientific activity uh, designing vaccines. They did not know what the pathogen was. So Obviously, vaccine is not going to work unless it's, you're hitting the right target. But if you happen to be lucky enough to be infected by a bacterial pneumonia that was causing your problems, a secondary infection after influenza opened the way, uh, even today, bacterial pneumonia following influenza has an 8% case mortality rate. But if you were lucky enough to uh, be given a vaccine against bacteria, then you could actually get treatment. They did have oxygen, but it was not widely available. So there was not a lot you could do in 1918. What happened to all the bodies? People were dying in their homes. Were there uh, capabilities to transport all these bodies and bury them in an appropriate way, or did that not happen then? A lot of cities dug, dug mass graves. Uh, as, as you pointed out, a lot of people died in their homes. And in some cities, just as in the Middle Ages, you literally had priests driving horse-drawn carts down the street, calling upon people to bring out their dead. Almost every city ran out of coffins. Coffins were, were being reused uh, in, in funerals. Someone would die, they'd have a service and take the body to be buried and reuse the coffin. Um, and services, funeral services were limited to immediate family in most cities. We didn't have any federal guidance in 1918 and not really any state guidance either. It was pretty much up to the, the mayor and health commissioner in a given city as to what occurred. So the epidemiologist, the virologist that you mentioned in your book at what is now Rockefeller University, but then Rockefeller Institute or at Johns Hopkins, they spent a lot of time trying to develop a vaccine. And basically, did they just throw up their hands at the end? And as I understand it, even today, we still do not have a vaccine for the flu or the influenza from 1918. Is that right? At Rockefeller, for example, they, they did develop uh, an anti-pneumococcus vaccine. And uh, if you get a, a vaccine today against bacterial pneumonia, it is a straight line descendant of what was developed back then. They were very good scientists. Uh, although obviously they didn't have the knowledge or tools that we have today. In, in terms of influenza, uh, you know, obviously we do have a vaccine. It's not particularly effective. Uh, the best vaccine we have ever produced for influenza makes it 62% uh, 
less likely that you get the disease. The worst was only 10% less likely that you get the disease. Uh, that's because the virus mutates so rapidly. Uh, fortunately for COVID-19, the target for a vaccine is quite stable. Uh, so, and that's why people are fairly optimistic about the possibility of, of getting a vaccine for COVID-19. Now, uh, many people for COVID-19 are worried about the so-called second wave that comes back after it has uh, dissipated a bit. Was, this, was there a second wave with uh, the great influenza and was it even worse than the first wave in some ways? There was. It was a little different situation. The first wave in 1918 was, was hit or miss. For example, Los Angeles didn't have a single influenza death in the spring of 1918. Uh, I think much of the world was missed. Uh, it was quite widespread, however, in Western Europe. Uh, New York did have a spring wave. This is speculation on my part. The virus wasn't as good as it got later at infecting people. The other possibility is that it wasn't widely seeded enough around the world that an infection can, in fact, peter out, uh, could then and, and could today. Uh, but the virus, if my speculation is correct, at any rate, the virus got very good at infecting people uh, during the summer of 1918. It also became much more virulent. Uh, the second wave was worldwide, very quick, very fast moving. Uh, simultaneously in mid-September hit Boston and Africa uh, almost to the same day uh, and, and spread from there. In terms of what we're facing now, it's already getting hot, certainly in the South. I, I wrote an op-ed piece in, back in April where I was saying that we have 95% of the population still susceptible to COVID-19. And susceptibility to the virus, something highly transmissible as this is, is much more important than heat. It's true that respiratory viruses tend to not do so well in the heat, but at any rate, if we're seeing in the South today, uh, with that much of the population susceptible, we are seeing significant spread. That's a long way of saying, I think we're still in the first wave of COVID-19. Now, um, you said at the very beginning, the lesson that you took away from your research and your writing, and you wanted to convey to people is, uh, people should tell the truth. But didn't the mayors and all the public officials in those days tell the people what was going on? Didn't they tell the truth then? As a general rule, they did not. Uh, for different reasons than today. Uh, we were, of course, at war, and there was this uh, concern that saying anything that would be considered negative would hurt morale and hurt the war effort. Uh, so we didn't have a Tony Fauci in 1918. National public health leaders uh, said this is ordinary influenza by a different name. It clearly was not. The symptoms were horrific and obviously many, many deaths. Uh, in most cities, that was echoed. There were a few places, like San Francisco, uh, where uh, the local leadership was absolutely uh, forthright, told people everything they knew, including the fact that this was a deathly threat and that it needed to be taken very, very seriously. Those cities tended to do much better in terms of community effort, uh, holding together, much less fear and so forth uh, than 
where people were lying to. Now, you've said the symptoms were horrific, and they clearly were. Today, with COVID-19, uh, very often attaches to the lungs, and it makes it impossible for people to breathe, and they often die. That's not the only symptom. What were the main symptoms of uh, the great influenza type of flu? Well, it's a remarkably similar pathology that, unlike most influenza viruses, uh, you know, the 1918 virus could infect practically every organ. You know, and autopsies reported that almost every kidney was damaged, for example, which normally not affected at all. Uh, the same kinds of things that we're discovering with COVID-19, even to the testes, uh, neurological symptoms, which are extremely widespread uh, with COVID-19, although it's still primarily a respiratory virus, exactly the same thing in 1918. It's uh, remarkable parallels. So uh, one of the people who never said anything publicly was President Wilson. Um, he refused to say anything, I guess, or for whatever reason. Is that true? He never made a public statement about it? Never made a public comment. So he went over to Paris to negotiate for roughly six months the treaty to end World War I. Um, what happened to him when he went over there relating to this disease? Well, I think it probably affected the, the outcome of the peace treaty. Uh, he did get influenza. Uh, it was widespread in Paris in, in March and April. Uh, an American, one of the members of the American delegation died. Several others got sick. Wilson got sick, seriously ill. We mentioned a minute ago the neurological symptoms. He was clearly disoriented. Everyone around him meant from the White House usher to uh, Lloyd George, the British prime minister, uh, noticed how disoriented he was, how his thinking wasn't logical. Um, he couldn't remember things that had occurred an hour before. And in this physically weakened state and mentally disoriented, he went back to the negotiating table. He was negotiating with uh, George Clemenceau, whose nickname was the Tiger. Uh, and the Tiger really convinced Wilson to cave in on Prior to Wilson's illness, he was holding fast every principle upon which he said the U.S. had entered the war. Uh, and he caved in on essentially all of them except the League of Nations, which was the bone that Clemenceau threw him. After the peace agreement, uh, Wilson himself said he wasn't sure he would sign it if he was a German. John Maynard Keynes called him the greatest fraud on earth. Personally, I think, although you can't prove that. Uh, he probably would have held firm uh, and gotten a much better deal had he not gotten influenza. And you know, pretty much every historian who believes that the rise of the Nazis, at least partly spurred by a peace treaty uh, that was extremely punitive uh, to, to Germany after the war. So your point is that Wilson, because he was ill, wasn't able to function as well as he had before. As a result, the treaty became much more punitive toward the Germans and probably led to the rise of the Nazis and, and led to World War II. Is that, that's one of the points you sort of make in your book. Yeah, that peace treaty, you know, certainly contributed to the rise. You know, one never knows what, I don't really believe in alternative histories. You know, it's conceivable that Wilson would have caved in even if he had stayed healthy. I think that's unlikely based on anything everyone, any historian knows about his personality. It's conceivable that even if there had been a perfectly reasonable peace treaty, 
a peace without victory, as Wilson said he wanted, uh, the Nazis would have arisen uh, anyway. We don't know that, but you know the peace treaty. Wilson did get sick. He did cave in. Uh, the peace treaty certainly seems to have contributed to the rise of the Nazis. So when Wilson came back, ultimately he uh, campaigned for the League of Nations, had a stroke, and had other medical issues, as you know. But what happened to the virus, uh, the great influenza? Did it kind of peter out after the second wave? And, and how did that happen? Or is there no vaccine? Right. There, were, there was the third wave, which is when Wilson got sick in Paris. And, and very unusual, in fact, you had two waves in the same influenza season. One in the early fall through December, and then another one in late winter of 1918-1919. That's highly unusual. Um, but I think two things happened. Number one, people's immune systems were better able to deal with the virus. They could recognize it the second and third time around. Uh, so it no longer was as dangerous to them. And number two, I think the virus itself probably mutated toward mildness. As we said earlier, influenza virus is uh, one of the fastest mutating viruses there is. Uh, most of them are not nearly as lethal as 1918, although historically there have been a couple of other lethal pandemics if you look back a few centuries. Um, so I think that combination, and it became seasonal influenza until it or its descendants were replaced in 1957 by that pandemic. So as you um, thought about all the research and all the writings and knowing the dangers of, uh, of not being careful, what have you done living in New Orleans now to protect yourself from getting COVID-19? I assume you've got your mask on all the time. You're washing your hands all the time. Right. So right. You, you don't slip up at all and you're feeling pretty safe. Well, I don't know about feeling pretty safe. At the very first meeting on pandemic preparedness in the Bush administration, they invited uh, the infection control chief from the hospital in Hong Kong that had the best record in the world in protecting healthcare workers from SARS, much better than any other hospital. And what he told us was that everybody knew what to do. What he made sure was that in his hospital, his staff did it the right way every time. And the result was his healthcare workers lived. In other hospitals, healthcare workers died. And the lesson from that is compliance and discipline. Uh, and as a former football coach in me was thinking when he said that, it's Vince Lombardi blocking and tackling. Uh, I won't say that I never slip, but you know I try to remember that compliance makes a difference. If everyone wore the mask all the time and socially distanced, I actually think distancing is more important than the mask, but the mask is important. If they had proper ventilation in places, open windows if, if possible, if you stay home when you're sick or have any symptoms, we actually could control the transmission of this disease and have a very, very significant impact on it. So what is your next book going to be on? Is it another situation like this where people died and you're going to tell us what they did wrong? Or what is your next book about? Uh, it's a good question. I was in the middle of uh, writing a book on uh, coastal Louisiana. It 
lost 2,000 square miles of land, that land loss is continuing. Uh, it kind of gets into uh, global warming uh, and everything that's caused that land loss. But I am considering writing a book on, on COVID-19. I haven't decided yet. I would have to walk away from the other book. I'm not quite prepared to do that right now. John, I want to thank you very much for having written a very interesting book. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Thanks very much for, for having me on. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.